0: Good morning, everybody. I am um, so glad to see uh, see all of you here for this special occasion. Um, a special friend of mine is here, Mr. Sean Lim. So glad to have you here, brother. Sean and I have worked together in search for Jesus, and uh, just a joy to have him with us and others. Well, five years ago. Uh, On this month, on the 11th day of this month, the first pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church, who also happened to be my father, passed away from a massive stroke. It's been five years, believe it or not. Pastor Frank's ordination was the last ordination service that we held, and that was back in 1989, if you can believe it. I was ordained... Uh, in the mid-1990s in America. And so this is the first elder ordination service that we've had at Fellowship Baptist Church for over 30 years. And this is the first lay elder to ever be ordained into this ministry. process to becoming an elder is really quite simple. Um, as it is with deacons, someone is recognized as a candidate Uh, through the exercise of their gifts in ministry. And then with uh, much prayerful consideration, uh, the current elders uh, measure their suitability using the uh, list of qualifications. that are found in the books of uh, Timothy and Titus. And then after a period of observation, uh, after seeking the Lord's direction, the candidate is then approached. And if his desire matches the calling of God on his life, Uh, Then we take it before the congregation. Uh, We're seeking their approval. And we did this at our last AGM. And as you recall, the vote was uh, overwhelmingly in favor of ordaining Jesse to be a lay elder. The final step then is uh, a doctrinal examination uh, to ensure that the candidate is able to uh, defend the faith. Uh, in line with our church doctrinal statement and our church ministry philosophy. And we did this last Saturday, and uh, Jesse produced a wonderful uh, doctrinal statement, which he then defended successfully. And so it is the recommendation of the elders and the ordination council to ordain Jesse this morning. I've known Jesse since he was 11. Uh, He was in our first 24-7 club. Uh, that was held back in the early 2000s for preteens. And I've seen him grow up to be, uh, to, to teenage years, of course, and then as a young, very eligible bachelor, and uh, now as a husband and a father. But some of you don't know Jesse as well as I do, so I asked him to prepare a short bio just to kind of give you the opportunity to understand a little bit about his background. Jesse Jeffrey Zirati was born on January the 17th, 1988. He's the son of Nick and Christina Zirati and the older brother of a taller and much broader Christian Zerati. Uh, Jesse graduated from the Australian Christian College in Marsden Park in 2005 and went on to study a Bachelor of Theology at Swinburne University in 2007. He completed the Diploma of Photography at the Photography Institute in 2012, and a Diploma of Project Management from the Project Management Institute in 2014. He recently completed his Mastery Certifications for Microsoft Project, Finance Modeling, Microsoft MS-900, and Microsoft AZ-900 fundamentals, whatever that is. Some of you will understand. Jesse is currently studying for his PMP certification at the Project Management Institute and Preliminary Theology at Moore Theological College since 2022. Jesse is currently an IT Project Manager for a Microsoft Partner. No surprises there. And he specializes in cybersecurity, cloud computing, infrastructure, and network security. He also runs a professional photography business as a secondary vocation in his spare time. Jesse's been attending Fellowship Baptist for 23 years since April 1999 when the church was meeting back at Walters Road Public School. Although later that same year, uh, you remember we uh, moved into this facility. Fellowship Baptist is where he met his wife, Nicole. They've been happily married since 2017. In 2020, they welcomed their first child, Jaden, And Jesse and Nicole have been actively serving as members in the church since 2015. Jesse is currently managing the building committee for the church renovations, and he's working on a new governance app to be introduced next Sunday. He uh, volunteered as an email coach in Internet Evangelism for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association from 2019 to 2021. And in August of 2022, he started a not-for-profit website, Fundamentium.org, where he expounds on the Christian fundamentals and apologetics. Jesse loves to study the scriptures, enjoys reading history, music, playing sports, and board games with friends and family, showing no mercy, I might add. In his new role as an elder, Jesse is going to take on uh, more of an administrational role of an elder, although he will also be overseeing the young adult ministry And uh, assisting with things like visitation and mentoring. And as every uh, good uh, job description has, other duties as required. (laughs) Uh, Well, before we lay hands on Jesse and pray, I want to offer a charge both to him and to the rest of us from the first epistle of Paul to Timothy chapter 4. So please... Uh, Open your Bibles there, if you will. And before we have the message, I'm going to invite Justin, who's going to come and read verses 6 to 16 in preparation for the message.
1: For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation,
0: Lay eldership is a term that is commonly used for elders who are not vocational ministers. And yet they have spiritual oversight in a local congregation. And that's basically uh, the difference between the two. Because any elder, any pastor, any minister, which is the same thing, uh, just different terms, any elder, uh, vocational or lay, is biblically responsible uh, for the same things. First of all, they are called on to guard the doctrinal integrity of the church, uh, primarily by teaching the Bible in public or private, or helping others to do the same thing. Secondly, they exercise leadership in the church, and that typically involves uh, the administration of ministries, or helping to plot a course of action for the church that falls in line uh, with our God-given purposes. Uh, I think elders are vision casters in that sense. And then thirdly, an elder is a shepherd uh, providing spiritual guidance uh, that is biblical uh, or confrontation when necessary, and sometimes even corralling those members who are going astray. But Perhaps the most weighty responsibility for an elder, and it's weighty because it's so far-reaching, it's so constant, it's so impactful. And that is to be an example to the flock. 1 Peter 5.3 instructs elders not to lord it over those who are entrusted to us. In other words, uh, don't be a dictator. Don't issue uh, demands arbitrarily. But be an example to the flock. And this really is the direction that I would like to take in our message this morning from the reading in 1 Timothy 4. This is the first letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to his young son in the faith, Timothy. Uh, At the time of this writing, Timothy was a pastor in the the church at Ephesus. And the Apostle uh, basically is encouraging and instructing his student in managing the affairs of the church, as well as advising him on the nature of godly leadership and then also on his own personal walk with the Lord. By the time he gets to chapter 4, the apostle begins by warning Timothy that some people who once professed faith in Christ, uh, they're going to end up leaving the faith and apostatizing. Uh, They're going to listen to false teaching. They're going to be swayed by deceiving spirits and doctrines that have a demonic source. And this is something uh, that we all know continues to this day. In fact, It's a sad thing, but someone can grow up in the church. They can attend weekly services with their parents. They can say all the right things. They can even profess Christ as their Savior. And then when they reach their 20s, they get swayed by all the wrong friends, by workmates, and they leave their profession behind. Uh, Maybe a profession that they made just to please their parents. And they then start to pursue a whole set of beliefs that is totally in contrast with what they uh, grew up believing. And that's just a reality. That's just the way it is. And standing in the gap, holding back the apostasy and directing the people in his church towards the truth is Timothy. Notice in verse 6 that Paul says to Timothy that if he instructs the brethren in these things, In the nature and the danger of leaving the faith, he will be a good minister, a good servant. Actually, the Greek word for deacon. Uh, He'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And then through to the end of the chapter, he develops this idea of being a good minister in three primary areas. First of all, you will find the good minister's communication of truth. And there are five words in the passage that describe his teaching ministry. Uh, For example, verse 11 says he is to command, and that word uh, is the word prescribe. We get a word prescription from it. He is to prescribe and teach these things to his people. In other words, his preaching and teaching of the truth must demand action on the part of listeners. Verse 13 is to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. An exhortation. In verse 6, it's instruction. Secondly, the good minister takes heed or pays close attention to his doctrine. Uh, the apostle told Timothy in verse 6 that he should be nourished up in doctrine, meaning he should feed himself on it. In verse 7, he shouldn't allow certain fables or uh, what we would uh, refer to as unintellectual or unbiblical arguments to become part of his thinking instead verse 15 he should meditate on good doctrine he should give himself entirely to the truth in other words he's got to submerge his soul in the truth of scripture that's another part of being a good minister and it's one reason why we submit any elder candidate to doctrinal examinations But Then the last verse of this chapter instructs Timothy to take heed to yourself in addition to the doctrine. This is the last aspect of being a good minister. In fact, these last two things, taking heed to himself and taking heed to the doctrine are the two sides that make him effective in the first aspect of being a good communicator of truth. In other words, how does a man have something good to communicate to God's people? Well, it's only by taking heed to himself and taking heed to his doctrine. And these last two are so closely connected with each other in the passage that sometimes you'll actually see them overlap. Uh, Sometimes the apostle argues about taking heed to the doctrine on the basis of taking heed to yourself and vice versa. Uh, taking heed to yourself is on the basis of taking heed to your doctrine. You could say that the two really must go hand in hand in order to be an effective minister. But this morning, I want to isolate that third part of being a good minister or being a good elder, uh, if you will, or a good pastor. And I want to talk to Jesse about taking heed to himself or making some applications for the rest of us here today. So let me begin by pointing out that in verse 7, after Timothy is told to reject fables, he's then instructed to exercise yourself towards godliness. And he really develops that concept all the way down to verse 10. So that's going to form our first point under the elder taking heed to himself. It's his exercise of self towards godliness and then in verse 12 you'll notice the apostle says let no one despise your youth but be an example to the believers in six areas and that's going to be our second point which is being uh, an example to the believers or an example of godly being a godly believer i'm going to structure a message around those two points and apply them first to jesse and then to the entire elder board, including myself, uh, but uh, as well, of course, to you as the congregation. First of all, in verse 7, the apostle admonishes Timothy to exercise himself towards godliness. And I want to give you the background to this because it helps us understand really what the apostle had in mind when he wrote this. This word is translated... Uh, uh, the word translated as exercise is the Greek word gymnazo. Uh, We get our English word gymnasium from this word. And the apostle was taking that term right out of Greek athletics. Uh, It was the Greeks who originated the gymnasium as we know it today. Uh, They made these large buildings in which they would have uh, circular tracks. Their gymnasiums were much larger than ours. In fact, sometimes uh, they would have uh, indoor arenas that were large enough to hold chariot races, and they'd have covered tracks for foot races. And then they have an area uh, for what we would call weight rooms. Uh, they also added steam rooms or steam baths, and uh, wrestling mats, and uh, rooms for socializing, and. And the gymnasium formed a a very large part of Greek social life. Now, the Romans took that over, and in time it made its way into Judaism. Yet the Greek gymnasiums were one of the corrupting influences uh, for Jewish youth. The old Orthodox Jews fought very hard to keep their youth out of the gymnasiums, although they often lost that battle uh, because the gymnasium was just too inviting. Uh, it's strange, but today we love it when our youth want to go to the fitness center uh, because they need the exercise. But in ancient Greece and Rome, it became a hotbed for every kind of immorality and vice. The word gymnasium actually literally translates as school for naked exercise. And uh, Greek men wore little to no clothing as a tribute to their gods. So you can imagine what it was like and what it was, was going on in that kind of environment. And Paul takes this term right out of that context because it was so illustrative for Timothy. Timothy was living in a Greek city and no doubt there was a gymnasium in Ephesus and everybody would have been familiar with the athletic games that took place in his day. So Paul's use of that term would bring to mind that whole picture of Gymnastics that went on in that setting. And yet Paul is saying, Timothy, you do this with reference to godliness. Take yourself through spiritual gymnastics in order to build up your life in the service of God. Now, why does Paul mention this in connection with the old wives' fables in verse 7? You'll notice that it says, Reject profane and old wives' fables. And exercise yourself towards godliness. Why does he contrast those two things next to one another? Well, possibly it's because there were some who were teaching the myth that good physique had something to do with piety. Or that the health of the body had something to do with holiness. He might even be referencing a first century cult. A physique cult which connected good bodily health and strength with spirituality. So on that basis, Paul says to Timothy, look, and notice in verse 8, look, bodily exercise profits a little. Now there's an admonition in that, right? Because bodily exercise does have some profit in it. I mean, you know, don't be sedentary all day get out and get some exercise. There's profit in doing that. However, don't believe in the fable that good health equals holiness. That the more you pump iron and run the elliptical and log in a Peloton and hit the gym, the more holy you are. No, Timothy, stick to sound doctrine on that point. And exercise yourself rather to godliness. And then he gives two arguments for this. Number one, verse 8 says that godliness is profitable for all things. He says the bodily exercise profits a little. And perhaps uh, it means that it profits for a little time, so that it's temporary. Or perhaps it means it's limited in scope, or both. But in contrast to that, godliness is profitable for all things, meaning that it will profit in every area of life. In other words, bodily exercise only applies to very limited areas of life and it only lasts for a very short time. I mean, you know, it's, not, it's not one and done in the gym. So I did my workout, I'm good for the next 50 years. No, you have to exercise regularly. Three times a week, they tell us, at least, to get any profit out of it. And then I'm still going to die one day. Godliness is for every area of life. And in terms of longevity, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. I think I can, I can illustrate this very practically. When Moses wrote Psalm 90, he said the life expectancy in his day was three score and ten. A score is 20. So that's 70 years. Uh, He wrote that about 1,500 years before Christ. Right now, we are 3,500 years beyond Moses. The average life expectancy in the world today is 69.8 years for man. Uh, 74.9 years if you're a woman. Now, of course, it's a little higher in developed countries like ours by maybe six years or so, but the point is that we've gained... 4.9 years for our women. And we've lost about a month and a half for men. Since the day of Moses. Moses said three score and ten. And then he said maybe by reason of strength. Maybe you'll get four score. In other words. you know, Maybe if you're, you have a strong constitution. You're going to end up with 80 years. Which is pretty close to what it is. In developed nations today. So here we are. right? All of our medical technology all of our health products, all of our diets and medicines and natural remedies, a thousand workout options, and life expectancy still numbers in the 70s. So what if you exercise your body for an hour a day, five days a week for the next 40 years? That's the equivalent of over 14 months of steady 24-hour-a-day exercise. That might be very profitable for your body because bodily exercise profits a little. There's some profit in it. I'm sweating just thinking about it. But the comparative value of that to godliness is minimal. For example, what if you spent an hour a day in prayer five days a week over the next 40 years or the equivalent of over 14 months of solid prayer 24 hours a day? When you compare the two the first is not even worthy to be compared with the second and that's the point that the apostle here is making i mean a person could really give himself to bodily exercise right we know people like this that he could they could even follow the fable that seems to indicate that it has something to do with spirituality it's a bit you know like following one of those biblical diets in the hope that it'll make you more spiritual a lot of people Follow the Daniel diet, which doesn't appeal to me very much. Uh, there's a what would Jesus eat diet. You hear of that one? And there's the Bible diet, actually called the Bible diet. These are real diets. And yes, if you eat well, it does uh, reveal good biblical character traits. You know, If you exercise, it reveals you have self-discipline. It means you're a good steward of the body God has given you. It makes you strong and more alert. It helps you be more confident in life. It might even help you to get to the upper end of life expectancy today. But Paul's saying, okay, yeah, I can I, I concede that point. But the thing about spiritual exercise is that it's profitable in every area of your life. I mean, I mean you, you can take your godliness to Woolies. Your godliness can make a difference in the office. Your godliness will help you raise your children. You can take godliness with you when you go on holidays. You can wear your godliness on your deathbed. Godliness is profitable for all things related to this life. But more than that, because it has promised not only in this life, which is a wonderful thing, but what about when your fourth score is over? Well, in the life to come, what you did in this life towards godliness will have some consequence. Now, I don't fully understand that comment, but I do think that most of us have this concept of eternity where heaven just sort of equalizes everybody. Right. So no matter what you did in this life, uh, you know, no matter what we were and how we behaved as Christians, you know, when, as long as we're saved. When we all get to eternity, all the tears are wiped away and then we're in heaven and we just have this kind of equalized status. In other words, we all have the same position. We all have the same benefits. We all get the same treatment in heaven. And yet there are passages in Scripture that seem to indicate it's not quite the way it's going to be. So when the Apostle says that exercising yourself towards godliness today has some promise for the life to come, he's obviously speaking of something here that is beyond just our salvation, which evidently means there's some benefit that you will carry with you into eternity. Maybe it's the benefit of your works or your ministry that accomplished uh, more for Jesus. So you have less that burns up. You have more that remains to lay at His feet. I'm not really sure. But in any case, when you have a choice between the good and the best, remember that the worst enemy of the best is often the good. And of all the things that we could spend our time and attention on for ourselves... The Apostle says, give your priority to exercising yourself towards godliness. Don't let the good of bodily exercise distract from the best of exercising in godliness. Our second argument for that is down in verses 9 and 10. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, he's pointing back now to the promise of the life to come. So on the basis of that great hope, we both labor and suffer reproach in the here and now. Right? Because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So his second argument for exercising yourself towards godliness is that this now is the common Christian practice of laboring in light of eternity. I mean, who, who is who does the "we" refer to in verse ten? He says, "We both labor and suffer reproach." Well, it's unqualified in the text, so I would take it to refer to Christians in general. Uh, you know, of course, yes, the apostle, yes, Timothy, yes, elders, but also Christians in general. I mean, they labor, right? Sometimes to the point of exhaustion. My version says they suffer reproach. Some of the older manuscripts use the word uh, that means to agonize. But either way, we do these things because we have eternity in view. We have promise in the life to come. So Timothy, exercise yourself towards godliness because it is a common Christian practice to labor in these things. To agonize over these things in light of eternity. In other words, when you do this, you're simply joining the ranks of all of God's good people. Because this is something we should all be doing. Right? I mean, God is not asking the elders of this church to do the unusual or to do the extreme or to be the exception. No. This is meant to be the common experience for all of us. We both labor. We should all be exercising ourselves towards godliness. Let me ask you, is that part of your routine? You know, nobody likes to stick out from his peers. Nobody likes to be thought of as a fanatic. Sadly, those who really stretch themselves out towards godliness in the church are often seen as strange or even monkish in their approach to the Christian life. Instead, what I've discovered in 30 years of ministry is that we tend to put the premium on activity. To us, the most spiritual person is the one who shows up to the most activities, the spiritual person is the one who's always on the run. His phone is always busy. His schedule is always full. They're always out doing, doing, doing. But you know what? The premium in God's word is put on character, it's on spirituality, it's on your personal relationship to God. That's why an elder's first priority has to be himself. And if your reaction to that statement is to instinctively say, oh no, the elder's priority should be others, I want you to keep in mind that the elder who does not take heed to himself is the elder who will not long be able to take care of others. So the premium has to be on a man's own walk with God. On his exercise of godliness. You know, I think it's tragic and God's ministers don't take time or don't have time for a consistent devotional life. Or when it's impossible for them to set aside any quiet time to pray. Or when it's all they can do to spend enough time in God's Word to get the message ready for the next sermon. Let alone meditate on the Word for their own soul. And either the man himself is not prioritizing his life properly well, the demands of the people simply don't allow Him to do that. Now, those of us who are elders and deacons in this church, we have to be so careful that our activity in the congregation does not rob us of the time and the attention we need to feed our souls. We must, we must make time. We must take time. Yet the sad fact is that generally, you know, it's not uh, the Christian leaders are so busy in the Lord's work that we don't have time for this. Really, I think, if I was being honest with myself, we're so busy doing things that are unnecessary that we don't have time for this. We have to be so careful that we don't let our time be sapped by all of those peripheral things that really have no bearing on eternity. That really have nothing to do with godliness. But they're just Time wasters. After hearing Jesse's biography, you can tell he's a busy man. Yet he must make sure there's enough time for meditation in Scripture. For reading good Christian books. For the study of passages in depth. For taking the needs of God's people before the Lord in prayer. For examining his own soul before God in prayer. There has to be time for this. And the people of God must see to it that He does. You know, the most profitable time that a minister can spend for the sake of their people is the time that he spends closeted up with God. That is not wasted time. That is the best time. And it will reap the richest rewards for that assembly. When your elders are closeted up with God and they feed their own souls until there is growth and they're spiritually muscular from exercising themselves towards godliness, that is the most profitable thing that we can do for you. We, we will dry up in our ministry if our emphasis is on renovating this church rather than building ourselves up in the Lord. One of the best things that you can do for your pastors is help us carve out time to be with the Lord. Many years ago, I used to meet every week with a group of local pastors, and uh, one of them was always so discouraged because he had he, uh, really had to do everything in his church. Uh, he was the one to clean up after the service. He was always the last one to leave and lock up, and he was always the one who had to put out the chairs and. Uh, organize the service orders and prepare the Lord's table and get quotes for their, uh, their building upgrades and maintain the ground. It was killing the poor man. He was suffering from depression. He had to take medication to cope. And I always wanted to tell these people, you know, someone else should do that PowerPoint for him. Now, what, what do you guys should take ownership of setting up and taking down for services? When the man shows up on a Saturday morning to mow the grass, they should say, no, Pastor, you go home. You need to get ready for tomorrow. We'll we'll take care of this for you. He didn't need to spend three days a week as a building maintenance manager and just drying up his soul. You know, I could never speak to that congregation And the man left the church and now he's totally out of the ministry. Let me show you something here in the passage. The apostle tells Timothy that he's to exercise himself in this way. And if he does, something's going to happen as a result, a natural result. In verse 12, Timothy will then become an example in six areas. We'll talk about that in a moment. But when he becomes an example, how are they supposed to respond? They are supposed to follow his example. So notice in verse 15 that if Timothy will meditate on these things, And give himself entirely to them. It says his progress will be evident to all. And at the end of verse 16 it says. For in doing this you will save both yourself. And those who hear you. Now that doesn't mean that Timothy himself. Has the power to save anyone. But what he's saying is Timothy. By your example to people. They're going to take notice. They're going to see your growth. And they're going to follow your example. And then it's going to save you both. That's why I'm saying that the most profitable work your leaders can do is the work that they do on their own souls. I mean, just just watch how they serve the Lord out of full souls and watch the great benefit that comes from that. And, And then you'll find yourself saying, hey, that's what I want for my life. That's what I want for my family and my walk with God. So so let the elders be the type. That's the word translated as example there. It means to be a pattern. To be a model. Let them be the type. All right, now you be the anti-type. You be the answer to the type. You be the other side of it. In other words, what the apostle is admonishing Timothy to do here, it's not a selfish thing. It's the very thing that's going to make him the most effective in ministry. He simply must Exercise himself towards godliness. In 1830, Charles Bridges wrote a famous book entitled "The Christian Ministry." I brought it with me this morning. It's this book right here. That book is still in print. I got this probably 20 years ago or more. It's been read by ministers ever since, uh, because there really are, uh, there really are some things in it. I think that have never been equaled in ministerial literature. And Bridges has a whole section in the book that is entitled Causes of Ministerial Inefficiency Connected with Our Personal Character. I actually had a slide for this. I I forgot to put it on there. It got erased somehow. But I just want you to listen to some of the chapter headings that come under that title. Causes of Ministerial Inefficiency that are connected with our personal character. Listen to this. He's got a chapter called Lack of Entire Devotedness of Heart to the Christian Ministry. So that's, a, that's the minister who cannot find all of his satisfaction in his calling. Lack of devotedness. Uh, he's got a chapter called Conformity to the World. That's the minister who doesn't see the great value of being as holy as possible. The fear of man. Well, that's a big one. Lack of Christian self-denial. The spirit of covetousness. Now listen to this one. Neglect of retirement. It's not talking about the guy that doesn't want to retire at the age of 65. He's talking about the man who refuses to set aside a daily exercise routine for his soul so that every group of his spiritual muscles is exercised to the point of exhaustion. And as a result of that, he grows. So next time he can lift even more. A neglect of retirement with the Lord, really. Uh, The influence of spiritual pride is another one. The last one is a lack of faith. Bridges says that all of these things brought down the ministers in his day. And I want you to know that all of these things bring down the ministers today. It's interesting when you hear about pastors who suddenly quit after 20 years in the ministry. Or they have a breakdown. Or they just need extended leave because they're just physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted. Sometimes we read about pastors who just seem to dump the whole thing. The whole Christian life, I mean. And run off into a life of paganism or atheism. Just last year. Paul Maxwell, a preacher with a Ph.D. in theology from Wheaton, a writer for the Desiring God Ministries, renounced his faith in Christ. He said on Instagram he was no longer a Christian. And listen to his words. It feels really good. I'm really happy. Joshua Harris wrote the bestseller, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, 1997 left his wife of 20 years in 2019 and then promptly disowned his faith in Jesus. Andrew Stokelin, 30-year-old pastor of a megachurch in California. He took four months of leave. He got up in the pulpit. He preached his last message on depression August 25, 2018. Twelve days later, he killed himself. And when those things happen, you wonder if the people in those churches were sensitive enough to realize it didn't happen overnight. You really wonder if those churches ever encouraged their ministers to exercise themselves toward godliness. And they made sure that it was possible. And let me bring this really down to all of us and ask you this very pointed question. Do you really, really make this a priority in your life? In your home, does your schedule revolve around your time with God? Do you live to spend time with God every day? Because that's where the Scripture puts the emphasis. and There are many Bible verses to back this up. The blessed man in Psalm 1 is the one who meditates on the law of God day and night. In Joshua 1, when Moses was gone, God told the next leader of Israel, Joshua, that this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. It should always be part of your speech is what he's saying. And you shall meditate on it day and night. You should speak Bible is what he's saying. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law! It is by meditation all of the day. And so Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, meditate on these things. Give yourself wholly to them, be submersed in them. All of us have responsibilities to serve the Lord, and elders are especially called to serve in a greater capacity. But I want you to know that those responsibilities were never intended to take us away from God. And if God gave you a ministry, then He intends that there will also be time for the work of cultivating godliness. So we have to re-examine our priorities if we have lost our time with God. Maybe we don't need to be making as much money as we're making. Maybe we don't need to have as much entertainment as we have. Maybe we don't need to be watching as much sports as we do. The good minister exercises himself to godliness and it becomes a great example for his people. And that leads me naturally to the second reason in verse 12. You'll notice that when Paul starts this particular command to Timothy, he starts it with a negative. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example. Now, again, why does he connect those two things like that? Well, evidently, Timothy was somewhat of a younger man. Now, he wasn't a novice. Uh, He'd been a missionary and a pastor for 15 years at this point. But he began his ministry at a young age. And uh, believe it or not, he would have been about Jesse's age at this time. No more than mid-30s. Uh, at the very latter end, maybe late 30s. But in his church, there were no doubt people who were older than he is, just like in our church, we have people older than Jesse. Now, you and I know how this works, right? Uh, I look at kids in college today, and I think, hey, did I look that young when I was in university? Uh, I remember when I went off to college, I looked at my two younger brothers, and I thought, man, did I look like that? When I was in high school. And we were awfully mature in high school. <laughs> um, when I look at some of you married couples, I think to myself, did I look like that when I got married? And I suppose it's that way when you hit 65. You look at all the 45-year-olds and a bunch of kids running the place. What's going on? Well, Timothy had the same problem. And so there were people in the church who had difficulty following his leadership simply because of his age. Now, how do you overcome that kind of a barrier? He was young Jesse, about the same age as Timothy. Uh, Timothy read this letter for the first time. uh, He had a young family. Jesse has a young bride, small child. How is he going to overcome that kind of contempt, or even patronizing comments from well-meaning older people. Well, you know, history gives some striking examples of this. Did you know that Alexander the Great was 32 when he died? Younger than Jesse. He already had conquered the world. Uh, Mozart composed his first concerto at the age of five. At the age of six, Ripe old age of six, he performed at two imperial courts of Europe. And at the age of 13, he was the concert master at the Salzburg Court in Austria. He's Olivia's age. My daughter. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, 43, when he was elected president of the strongest nation in the world in 1960. Melanie Perkins was just 19, when she was struck with an idea that has made her one of Tech's youngest CEOs at the age of 30 with a personal fortune just shy of $1 billion. Her idea? Canva. So how do you overcome youthfulness? How did Alexander the Great overcome it? How did Mozart or JFK or Perkins or anybody else at that age overcome it? We would say this, that it's expertise that silences the criticisms of youth. Right? When you're an expert in your field, people don't care how young you are. If you can play the violin, they'll come and listen. In fact, you know it's because you can play so well at that age that makes people want to come and listen. Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying here to Timothy. St. Timothy expertise in godliness will overcome criticism of your youth. So you be a type, an example, a model. You be an expert in various areas of your spiritual life, and then the rest of the believers in the church will become the anti-type. They will answer to you as the type. You say, a type in what area? Well, he names six of them. I want to run through them very quickly and it's interesting that Paul picks these particular ones out. But first of all, Timothy should be an example in word and that means in his speech. In other words, Timothy is not going to be known for gossip. Nor is he going to be known for criticism. He's not going to be known for having a bitter spirit that reveals itself with harsh words. Nor is he going to be known for profanity. Or talk that is filthy or off color. He won't be known for constantly complaining or whinging. He's going to be careful to make his talk a type for believers to follow. Then Paul says in conduct, referring to his general lifestyle, the tone of his life, Timothy is going to have a life that is diligent and passionate. A life with proper priorities. A life that is orderly. A life that is harmonious. Not only a type in word and conduct, also in love. In a self-sacrifice of Himself. How do you raise people who give themselves selflessly to the work of the Lord? How do you raise people who give and don't expect anything in return? It's the elder who has to be the first one who gives and doesn't expect anything in return. Used to be a type in love. In his own family. In his ministry with his people. Before unbelievers. It's in love. And then it's in spirit. This is a word that's actually not found in the older text. It's a little difficult to understand what it's talking about. But it might refer to what it meant in Daniel. When it says about Daniel. That he was found to be a man of excellent spirit. Meaning that he had a good attitude. Sometimes we Uh, Say that somebody has a good spirit about them and that's what we mean and that's probably what this is referring to. The elder has to have a positive attitude when things are looking bad. And then in faith, in other words, Timothy is to be the first one to believe God. If there's a crisis, he's got to be the one who takes the lead in bringing it to God in prayer and saying to people, look, we, we can trust God about this. God isn't going to let us down. When the congregation staggers under a blow of persecution or a setback in ministries or a terrible trial, the elder is the one who says, hey, we're going to trust God and He's going to take care of this. All things are going to work together for our good. He's a type in faith and He's a type, lastly, in purity. In other words, there's no hint of immorality about His life. No one questions the purity of his life and actions. One of the qualifications for elders in chapter 2 is that he must be the husband of one wife and the literal translation of that is that he is a one woman man. So everyone should know and appreciate that Jesse is dedicated to Nicole and none other. But more than that, Because purity covers not only the actions, but also the heart. So there must be a purity about an elder that is attractive and causes people to to trust him, to trust his ministry. There's no lingering questions about his purity. Now those are the two major exhortations that are given in this passage about a man of God taking heed to himself. And you can see that they both work together. So Jesse is to exercise himself towards godliness and be an example, a type in all of those areas of godliness for the congregation to follow. Now, if we had a lot more time, we could make all sorts of specific applications for the rest of us, right? Uh, we could say, you know, from this day forward, we're going to start uh, doing this without time. And then we're going to work on doing this with our hobbies. And we could go down a list and we could make specific applications like that. But I think maybe the Spirit of God just wants all of us to search our own heart and make the applications in our life that He is bringing to your mind. And then, just as Paul says that Timothy is to be an example, all of our elders should be an example for this congregation And when we set that example, it really demands a response on your part. And there shouldn't be any hesitation to deal with those things that your elders have warned you about in in past years. Things that are enemies to your godliness. And when God gives any church godly leadership, that assembly needs to look at that leadership and say, I want that kind of prophet in my life. Uh, what I see in his life, I want it for me. I want those kinds of answers to prayer. I want that kind of peace in my spirit. I want that kind of ability to get through tough times. That's the example we have to set as elders. That is the type that God's people have to follow. Now, what happens when you have this kind of healthy relationship going on in a church? What happens if you have a good minister? soaking in the words of sound doctrine, his soul just swells with godliness and now he's full of faith in the Lord and full of love and excellent speech and an excellent life code. And then the people take that to heart and they start imitating his example in their own lives. All right, what happens? Paul says uh, uh, in verse 16 that when that becomes a reality in the church, he says to Timothy, you will both save yourself and those who hear you. Now, does that refer to eternal salvation or our justification in Christ? I don't think so. I mentioned this earlier. I think it's talking more about salvation in a general way. I think it includes the concept of eternal salvation, but it's really salvation in a more sanctifying sense. It's salvation from all of the snares of death that Proverbs talks about. It's salvation from all of the grief that comes from a wicked life. It's salvation from the turmoil of a hectic lifestyle that doesn't have the Holy Spirit in control. When this relationship exists in a church, there's salvation both for those elders and for those who hear them and follow them. You know, I have to confess that this message touched my heart in the preparation and made me painfully aware of my own need for more of this as a lead elder to pursue a more rigorous exercise regime for my own godliness. I confess that openly to you because I have to do that for your benefit. But I trust that this has been convicting for you as well. David Brainerd, the missionary to the American Indians himself, a very young man when he died at the age of 39, was writing to a young candidate for the ministry. And he said this, The way to enjoy the divine presence and be fitted for distinguishing service for God is to live a life of great devotion and constant self-dedication to Him observing the motives and dispositions of our own hearts, whence we may learn the corruptions that are lodged there and our constant need of help from God for the performance of the least duty. And then he adds this little bit, which I love. He says, and oh, dear sir, let me beseech you frequently to attend to the precious duties of secret fasting and prayer. Upon reading this letter, the French theologian Quesnel wrote this, how great is the difference between a preacher formed gradually by the hand of God in retirement, fasting, and prayer and those ordained in haste who have no other school but the world nor the masters but themselves and no other preparation than human studies interrupted by worldly conversations and diversions. In our church, We want our leadership to exercise themselves towards godliness. And the elders want to encourage you in that. We want to give ourselves to sound doctrine and set the right example for you. And then we want to see you follow that example and grow in godliness so that we all have nourished souls that will set this community on fire as people come and see us live for God. Let's bow for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we look at a passage like this and we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray that your Spirit would move among us as your people and use this occasion, yes, focused upon Jesse and his ordination, but also focused upon ourselves that we would see His example of someone growing in spirituality and be motivated to do so for our own lives. And so may we be a beacon of light in this community and the world. And we thank You, Father, for what You will accomplish as we submit to the convictions of Your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.